once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. May God bless to us the reading of his precious word. I was thinking about this week about the tender mercies of God upon us. It's remarkable how times of difficulty, times of hardship bring out in your mind and in your heart perhaps certain tensions or anxieties and certainly certain thoughts that you really are in the hands of God for all of life. We go through life uh, day by day perhaps never really thinking about the the great, great catastrophes that might befall us. And I really thought about that, for instance, on Thursday afternoon when the sun broke through and there were the clouds, but the sun, the blue sky was shining. And then on Friday, all day, it's like just a, a magnificently beautiful blue day. And I thought to myself, how is it possible that two days prior, absolute devastation is wreaking havoc across us? How is it possible now to sit in the sunshine in this glorious blue sky that I'm observing, and two days previously, devastation was happening. In fact, we were in it. We were in the trial. We were in the storm. We were, not one of us were exempt from it. We were right in the middle of it. We faced it. We felt it. We experienced it. And that made me think about that even in the storms as well as in the, the glorious sunshine of a beautiful day, that God is good to us and God is merciful to us. That God does, it would appear, after all the rain has fallen, bring about His sunshine. And isn't that the warming of our hearts towards God when we look at that and we see that and we feel that, that God has done something magnificent for us? He has brought something that has caused us to remind ourselves that life is very fragile, that life is in His hands and it can be taken at a moment, and yet then He brings His comfort to us by causing us to see the beauty of His creation. And reminding us that even in that, He is the giver of all of those good things. Those, those, that attitude or that kind of thinking should pervade all of our thinking. You eat food this morning, perhaps breakfast. You enjoy your breakfast. You should have given thanks for your breakfast because it came from God. right? You'll enjoy lunch. You'll enjoy supper tonight. You ought to give thanks to God for those very gifts. Because when you do that, you remind yourself that God has done something for you. That you've received something that only God can provide for you. You know, this epistle to the Philippians is quite remarkable in many respects. For instance, when you read the other epistles of the Apostle Paul, he always says that he's an apostle. So if he tells the Romans or the Corinthians or the Galatians or the Ephesians or the Colossians or the Thessalonians, he always says to them, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. But he never says that in this letter to the Philippians. He never speaks to them about his authority as an apostle, as one sent by Jesus Christ, commissioned by Jesus Christ to the church at Philippi. He never says that. In fact, if you look at verse 1, he says that he is a servant. Some translations may say a bond servant. But that word is the word for a slave. A bond servant really carries the idea of an indentured servant. 
So you're a servant only for a period of time, and then once you've paid whatever it is, or you've hired out yourself for a period of time, then you're free again to carry on something else. So indentured or a bond servant really doesn't convey the idea of a slave. We don't like to use the language of slavery because of the many connotations, but not Paul. Paul said that he was a slave of Jesus Christ. He was not free to be as he pleased and to do as he wanted. He was free to be only what Christ wanted him. And the remarkable thing about that description that Paul gives in his introduction to the Philippians is that he counters it on the other side by introducing all the saints. That I'm writing to all the saints in Philippi. And notice the use of his language, the saints. That word is the holy ones. The apostle is, is not putting himself up here as an apostle with authority, but he's joining with them as a slave of Jesus Christ, and he's speaking to all these people whom he calls holy ones who are called saints. And he includes the leadership together with the overseers and the deacons. In other words, all the church. That's Paul's introduction. That is important for the book, this book, this little four-chaptered book, because that is an expression of the feeling of the Apostle Paul to these Philippians. What does he feel for them? He's going to talk about that. In fact, in chapter 1, he's going to describe his relationship to Jesus Christ and them that they are partakers of Christ as he is a partaker of Christ. And in talking about being a partaker of Christ, he's going to talk about their sufferings. And not only about their sufferings, but they might have to suffer from this day to the day of Jesus Christ. And he mentions the day of Christ twice in chapter 1. Then, after talking about their participation or being partakers of Christ, in chapter 2, he describes them as the people of Christ. A people who belong to Christ are in relationship with Christ. A people who are to submit to Jesus Christ and to have the mind of Christ. Remember the great theological hymn in chapter 2 that Jesus humbled himself, became obedient unto death, took the form of a servant, been found in fashion as a man, humbled himself and so on, but now is highly exalted, God has highly exalted him. That great portion there is the theology behind the attitudes that you and I are to have towards one another. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, don't look to your own interests only, but look to the interests of of others. That's what Jesus did. That's the mind of Christ. That's what the people of God are to be like. They are to have the mind of their Savior, the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he talks about that in chapter 2. But when you get to chapter 3, he describes that being the people of God, we are to pursue Christ. And you remember that great passage, right, when he says that I may be like him. I want to be found, I want to find Christ or be found by Christ. I want to know Christ. I want to know his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death and in his resurrection. I mean, this is just the pursuit of Christ, isn't it? And the pursuit of Christ is really because of our salvation. We have been, we have been saved and now as a result of that, how do I live? I live by pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as a Christian, the Apostle Paul would tell the Philippians and he would tell us, the knowledge of Christ ought to be increasing in every believer every day. It would be a sad commentary on your life when you get to the end of your life if, been, if you've been a Christian for many years and you get to the end of your life and your knowledge has only increased this much. Because look what you have and look what I have. 
to increase my knowledge of Christ. So Paul talks about that in chapter 3. And then when he gets to chapter 4, he talks about the power of Christ. The power of the Lord Jesus Christ in our sanctification. Our sanctification, how we are being transformed, how we are being changed day by day into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, at the bottom of that relationship of sanctification, you need to know the peace of Christ. And doesn't the peace of God surpass all understanding? That's chapter 4. This is a letter of joy. What we need to know about it also is that this is a prison epistle. So, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and the little book of Philemon, or what we call prison letters or prison epistles. That means the Apostle Paul was in prison. He was suffering. He's chained by Nero's chains. He's suffering for the gospel. And he's writing a letter to these Philippians that is suffused with joy. In fact, the very first verse of chapter 3 and verse 4 of chapter 4, he says, finally, I say to you, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say to you, Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice. You see, because Paul knows that suffering is not that which should take away our joy in life. That suffering should only cause us to cast ourselves more upon the living Christ. And as a result of living in Christ and with Christ, our joy is increased and we are made all the more richer for it. It is a sad commentary on the Christian church and on Christians when they are not joyful or they are unthankful. That's why I've said I want to talk a little bit about thankful for God's tender mercies. Mercy and grace are very interesting and important to Christians, aren't they? Because by grace we mean this, this lavished favor freely upon us, undeserved. That's grace. God has been gracious to us. But mercy is that side, the other side, that God has not given us what we do deserve. His wrath. He has withheld Himself. But it's not just grace and mercy, but when we go to the plural or we make it mercies, we don't then mean by mercies that it's what we don't deserve. But we see in mercies all the evidences and the acts or the actions of God toward us. We sometimes say, I'm thankful for small mercies, for little benefits, for the little things that seemingly are insignificant that I never thought about until now. And perhaps going through what we have gone through this past week, we never thought about certain things until then. Because the realization should have come home to all of us that today I might not survive and I might not be here. My house might be gone and my neighbors might be gone. Everything could be, could be tragic. Thankful for small mercies, small benefits, small blessings. The myriad of blessings that every Christian has is, in, is innumerable and uncountable. And we ought to be thankful for small mercies. So Paul... When he writes to the Philippians, this is what he's writing about. He's concerned for them, right? So like he writes to the, the Corinthians in his second letter, he tells them about God who is the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. And then he says that you are a, part, a partaker of Christ along with me uh, in suffering for Jesus. And I have to tell you, dear congregation, I come from another 
another continent and another country, another uh, uh, country that no longer exists. Actually, it has a new name. It's not the same. And here we are, and we are in the most prosperous country in all of the world. And yet, you can go to the grocery store like I did yesterday to buy some milk, and there's not a thing on the shelf in the most prosperous country in the world because. God sent the wind and the rain in a great manner. And we might, might complain, right? Because there's no milk on the shelves, or I've lost power for the night, or two nights, or three nights, and I have no water, no running water. And you see, it's because you enjoy the blessings so often and so much, and perhaps never have taken the time to thank God for those small mercies that when He removes them from us, then we are overcome by the loss of them. And we feel it, and we might be tempted to, to complain about it. Oh, I've got no milk. Oh, I've got no power. Oh, I've got no water. What am I going to do? Woe is me, and so on. Thankful for tender mercies of God is what a Christian should be like. That's why Paul in this letter is is so taken up with this whole attitude of joy and rejoicing that a Christian is to rejoice in all aspects of life, in all my trials, in all my afflictions, in all my hardships, in all my sufferings. And not only in that, but in all the blessings and all the good times and in all the, 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 the occasions of wonder. That I am to be a Christian who gives evidence that I truly trust in the times of prosperity and the times of adversity. And I would remind you, by the way, that the times of prosperity are far more significant than the times of adversity. Because in prosperity, you tend to forget God. You tend to think, I've got everything. I don't give a single thought about there being milk or cereal on the shelf, because I know it's there. But put yourself, and, and being in prosperity, we tend to forget that it is God who supplies, like Paul says in chapter 4, my God will supply all your needs in Christ Jesus, spiritual needs and physical needs, it is true. But your life does not consist of uh, a foundation of physical needs only. In fact, I have yet to discover, as David prayed long ago, that I have yet to see the righteous go begging. God has sustained us. In fact, if you have water and uh, more water, you can survive for a while. And God has kept us. Small mercies. Small mercies to be thankful for. John Flavel says that God's mercies are threefold. First of all, he says there is preventing mercies that apply to the whole world. That all the world enjoys the small benefits, the blessings of God. Like the sun shining, the rain falling, whatever it is. Or running water in their homes, or food on the shelves. Whatever it is. The whole world can enjoy some of those small mercies of God, preventing mercies, applying to the whole world. Then he says there's delivering mercies to all the saints. That God just showers His goodness, His mercy, His blessing, His benefits upon us day after day after day. They are new every morning. Right? So, delivering mercies, God delivers to His people. But then there are sparing mercies where He delivers His mercy to you particularly. 
and you might not even recognize it because you don't know God. And if you are a believer, you would and ought to recognize it. Small, sparing mercies. I'm assuming all of our homes are still standing. I have seen trees in my neighborhood that were, are magnificent. Down, but not on a house. It's amazing, right? A gust of wind just comes out of nowhere, takes the roots of that tree out of the ground, and it falls, and it doesn't hit a home. In fact, I can even speak closer for all of us here, because there's a palm tree. Well, it's no longer there now, but it was there. Okay, between the two buildings, this building and the outside building. It was tucked away right between them. It didn't fall that way and it didn't fall this way because if it had done that, it was a big palm tree. It would have taken out our building. But it fell that way, onto the driveway. Is that not a sign of the mercy of God? But listen, even if the palm tree had fallen on the building, nobody was in the building. Isn't that a mercy of God? Right? And if it should have happened that in the gracious providence of God, you happened to be walking here in the storm, which I wouldn't know why you would ever do that, but if you hadn't to be, and it fell on the, on the building and you were crushed under it and died, that would still be a more, small mercy. You would say, wasn't it good that God took him and maybe didn't take all of us, but took one? Mercies. Mercies to all of us. I remember the story of Martin Lloyd-Jones in the Second World War when he talks about the bombings, the German bombing over London and how the church, you know, while he's preaching in the church, the windows are, are shaking and the bombs are falling all around them. Darkness falling upon them and you carry, he just carries on preaching. But there was a home where two twin sisters lived and uh, the bomb fell right on that home. And someone said, thank God they were together. They went home together to the Lord. He took them both. Small mercies. You see, most of us don't tend to think about those things until the tragedy or the afflictions or the hardships of life descend upon us. Now, I recognize that all of us are different personality-wise, right? So some of us are more inclined to be pessimistic than optimistic. All right? So the pessimistic person sees trouble and danger everywhere around them. Again, the optimistic person may be foolish enough to say, well, there's no danger, when in reality there might be. So, neither are, are, are perfect, are they? But they all have their weaknesses. And yet, we as believers, when Paul writes to the Philippians, a man who's chained in prison for the sake of the gospel, he writes to them, his heart is filled with joy at their participation and their partnership with him in the gospel, in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So much so, right, that he says, for instance, in verse 5, that I, I always pray for you, verse 4, because, verse 5, of your partnership in the gospel. They share in the gospel. So the Jesus who saved Paul is the Jesus who saved the Philippian jailer, you remember, in Acts chapter 16, who saved Lydia of Thyatira, who was living in Philippi, and they met her outside the city. Remember when Paul went in Acts 16 to Philippi? He came to that city. They were looking for a place to worship. It would appear, because his usual practice was to go into a synagogue, that there were not enough men to constitute the synagogue in Philippi, so they had to go outside, look for some place of worship, and by the little river outside Philippi, they find a group of women, and they've gathered there together. 
And they have a prayer meeting. And the Lord opened Lydia's heart to believe the gospel. She's the first convert in, Lydia, in, in Philippi. And then, because of their witnessing and the casting out of the demon out of the slave girl and the loss of profit for her owners, Paul and Silas are cast into prison. And you remember midnight? What are they doing in prison? In chains? Praying and singing hymns to God. Worshipping God in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their affliction. And suddenly there's an earthquake, their chains are set free, and of course that leads to the conversion of the Philippian jailer and his entire household. And so in the matter of a day or a few days, you have a church established. That the Apostle Paul is kind of a bystander, really. Because it's God who saves us and God who saves individuals. But this church is, is founded in Philippi. And you know, Philippi is an interesting city, isn't it? Because it's named after Philip II of Macedon, who's the fa father of Alexander the Great. It became, later in the Roman Empire, of course, a very important Roman city or a Roman colony because it granted citizenship to people who lived in Philippi. So a lot of ex-soldiers would come to Philippi. They could get land and buy land and they began to live and Philippi became a thriving city. We do know in 42 BC, there's the great battle of Philippi, right? Between Octavius and Mark Antony on one side versus Cassius and Brutus on the other side. A war or a battle for the throne of Rome, which ultimately will go to Octavius, who is the Caesar Augustus when Jesus is born. And so these are, these are, this is the background. When I read the history of, of Philippi and all of that, and I read Alexander the Great, because Dan, the book of Daniel talks about Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire and so on, you just see the hand of God in all of life. So when I begin in Genesis chapter 1 and I read all the way to Revelation chapter 2, it is the hand of God in all of our lives, even the life of a city 2,000 years ago that formed a church. Because Christ came to Philippi. And the Apostle Paul came in obedience to the gospel upon him, the commission and the authority of the word upon him to preach. Remember? Come over and help us. The Macedonian call. And that's how he came to Philippi. God brought Jesus Christ to that city. In times of hardship, in times of affliction, in times of prosperity, God brings Christ to our situations. I don't know your particular family, home life, all of you. I know some of yours. Those home lives might be tragic because not everybody's a Christian, not everybody's a believer, so everybody's at odds thinking differently. And how do you live in the midst of that? You live by the grace of God. You live by the kindness of God. That is when you begin to realize that God is of tender heart towards you in the midst of those trials, in the midst of those sufferings, when you must testify about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ with those who don't believe. That is a trial in and of itself. And many of us have worries or concerns about our families and our loved ones and so on. Our children and our grandchildren. But the gospel is all about grace and mercy. And because we have received this gospel and grace like the Philippians who came to share in the gospel, Paul says, not only share in the gospel, but they share in grace with him. That's what happens when you become a, a Christian. You now share in the gospel and all that it means, your salvation. And you share in the grace 
of the gospel, all to the glory of God, right? Because doesn't he say to the glory and the praise of God on the day of Jesus Christ? So the Apostle Paul, as he talks about their participation, he is talking to them about their, their difficult lives, their hard lives, the things they've suffered. And he says, I'm with you because I'm suffering in prison. And I suffered in Philippi, as you know. I know all about suffering. But I'm rejoicing in Christ. And this is the lesson we need to learn. We need to rejoice in Christ. It's interesting, you know, when you look at uh, chapter 2, for example, when Paul talks about what kind of people should we be, right? We are to be, look in chapter 2, verse 2, of the same mind, the same love, in full accord, and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition, verse 3, or conceit, but in humility count each other more significant than yourself. That's how Paul did. He counted others more significant than himself. Isn't that what Jesus did? He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, which is what chapter 2 is all about, right? Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, being in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped at. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what the people of God do. That's what we love to do. We love to worship and to give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, because He humbled Himself and gave us not just merely an example of how we ought to live, but He gave us Himself, life itself. Teaching us that in all of life a believer is to be submissive. And as Paul tells the, Thess- uh, the Ephesians in chapter 5, I think it's verse 21, be submissive to one another. Because in submission, you see humility. The lessening of your attitudes and your minds and giving all of your thoughts to others. Well, chapter 3, he talks about our pursuing Christ. Do you remember how Paul says, whatever was gained for me, I count loss, right? And remember, Paul could say, I'm circumcised. I'm a Pharisee, I'm a Hebrew, I'm a Jew. I got all these privileges, he says, but they mean nothing to me. I count them as loss. The only thing that matters to, the, to this mind, this man, this apostle, whose mind is probably the greatest mind that has ever lived apart from our Lord Jesus Christ, this man's mind is that he counts everything loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The knowledge of Christ. The knowledge of Christ. And he talks about, about his past, doesn't he? He says, I have confidence. If they have confidence in the flesh, those who boast about their circumcision and relationship to God, I have more confidence than them. And then he lists all his qualifications. But in the present, he says, I've counted everything lost for the sake of Jesus Christ. And then in the future, he talks about the fact that their end, the wicked's end, is destruction, but not ours. Ours is salvation. He's always thinking about life in terms of the past and the present and the future. And every Christian ought to think that. Think back to your past. I can tell you when I was saved. I was saved on November 15, 1970. 
That's a long time ago. That's 52 years ago. It was as clear as the bright shining sun when I was converted because I sat there in the front row and the preacher leaned over the pulpit, a missionary doctor to Africa, and he pointed his finger at me and he said, you must be born again. And like that, a bolt of lightning as it were, the sun shone, I could see that I needed Christ and I went home, but knelt down at my bed and confessed Jesus Christ and God saved me. And here I am. And here I am, 52 years later. And thank God, by His grace, I've now been preaching for 46 years. 46 years, standing Sunday, 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 preaching, preaching, preaching. Living what happened to me in the past, now in the present. Because my end, like your end, your present leading you to the end. I don't know your pasts. Jesus does. He knows every single thing about you. He knows your thoughts. He knows your desires. He knows your sins. He knows your secret sins. What you try to hide. He sees it. It's clear to him. He knows it and you know it. And he reminds us of those things. And he brings us. He draws us to himself. That word, by the way, of drawing someone to faith in Jesus Christ is not a word that is referencing their ability. For they have no ability. They cannot resist the drawing power of the Holy Spirit, but it does imply some resistance. And that happens to all of us in conversion. There are days when we say during conviction of sin that not today. No, no. But there does come a time when conversion occurs when you cannot resist the irresistible drawing power of the Holy Spirit. Just like Saul of Tarsus on his way to Damascus, on the Damascus road, a bright light strikes him from heaven, he falls to the ground, and he hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. I am Jesus. And in that moment, that rabid Jew, Antichrist man is saved. Is saved. You see, God saves surprisingly, doesn't he? Divine intervention. Sovereignly. He takes one here, he takes one there, and one there, and so on. Just like he saved Paul, he saved Lydia, he saved the Philippine jailer, and he saved you and he saved me, all by grace. Because I don't deserve it, and you don't deserve it. That's why it's by grace. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? And what are you going to do with the rest of your life? You have business concerns. You have school concerns. You have worries about what the future holds. The Apostle Paul would tell you that all you should do is submit those plans and purposes to God and get on with submitting yourself to Christ and becoming like Him. Be found in Him. I want to know Christ, he says, and the power of his resurrection. I want to know him in his glory and his goodness. I want to become like him. Become like Christ. Have you actually sat down and made a determination, I want to become like Jesus Christ? Because that's what a Christian should do. And we should do it every day. Today I want to be like my Savior, like the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the, I must hurry on. What is my prospect in chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven from which we await the Savior, who when He comes is going to transform our vile bodies to be like unto His own glorious body. That's my prospect, right? 
that when he comes, because my citizenship is in heaven, he's going to transform me to be like him. I want to be like him today as I walk and live my Christian life, but when he comes, then I shall be like him, because he shall transform me, and I shall become like him. What an anticipation. Because things are not so good now, you know. I mean, this is just a body, and it's dying every day. It's getting closer and closer to the grave, isn't it, every day? Or unless Jesus comes today, which would be glorious, right? But we are not getting better. We are not becoming evolutionized as if we are improving. Do you know the only true thing about evolution is its connection to sin? That's the only thing that evolutionizes is sin. It gets worse and worse and worse. It changes and changes and changes. But it's always sin. Always sin. But I can tell you I'm never going to grow wings on my back. And neither are you and never has one man ever done it. Nor has any bird ever become a man. And so on and so forth. Because sin is the only thing that that is true of. So, I have a home and I have a hope that's waiting for me. And it's Christ and it's heaven. My citizenship is in heaven. It's Jesus who gave me that little mercy. Who is changing me, sanctifying me. This is, this is why Paul can say in chapter 4, I rejoice in the Lord. And you Philippians, you should rejoice always in the Lord. You should be a rejoicing people, he says. But you know, he's very practical. This is what I like about the Apostle Paul. One of the first things he says after rejoicing in his Lord is, in, is, for instance, in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Now, you know, I looked out my back window uh, Tuesday night, late in the night and Wednesday morning, and I could see a river running, running from the north to the south because the wind was blowing from the north and it was just running. And it was about, about three, four feet wide down the gully, the back gully, which goes downhill. And I thought, well, okay. Got a little river growing there. And the next thing, it's another eight feet, ten feet on either side up the thing. And I said to myself, well, I wonder how far will it come? Because if it keeps coming, it's going to come up to the house. Now, it's a good another ten feet maybe to go, but... I'm anxious, right? I'm a little concerned. But then I opened my front door. Tell no one that in a hurricane I opened my front door. But I opened my front door and just looked out and there's a river in my street in the front. Now, it's, it, you can't see the road. There's no road. It's just a river of water from the north to the south flowing as strong as anything. My sidewalk and the little gully in the sidewalk between the two grass areas, water. And it's come to the edge of my driveway and my driveway is like that. And I thought to myself, it could keep coming. I mean, it's already 30, 40 feet wide. It can just keep coming, right? Ah, but then I discover, because I happened to look at the news, whatever I could find. No, this hurricane is moving away. And the rain is lessening. And with the lessening of the rain came the receding of the water. Just like Noah's ark, right? The water has to recede. Thank God it started to recede. Thursday morning I came out. I can still see a river. But I see some dry patches. Midday, no water. Sun starts to shine. Why was I anxious in the first place? Because I didn't want my home to be affected there are legitimate anxieties and there are vastly far more illegitimate anxieties. But even my anxiety for my home should be given to God. 
It should be entrusted to God whenever I feel worried or whenever I feel anxious to give everything to Christ, right? And to commit it to His hands. And that's what Paul does. That's why he says, let me tell you about the power of Christ in changing your life, first in salvation and then in sanctification. It's the power of God that can do that. And so, we come that that last passage when he suddenly starts talking about, I've learned the secret when I have everything and I have nothing, when I'm hungry and I have all kinds of food, when I, have, when I have these things, whatever they are, the highs and the lows, I have learned the secret of being content. I've learned the secret. I have cast all my burdens and all my cares and all my needs and all my wants upon Christ. Because Christ alone did the same for me. He set aside His glory. In fact, setting aside is not really the word. He took to himself humanity, and yet even as a man, he is still fully God because he added his humanity to his already existing deity. And he became what we call the God-man. Our Savior, who saves us and who delivers us. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Lamentations 3, verse 22. Think about that. Never come to an end. So, God will supply, Paul says at the end of Philippians, my need and your need according to the riches of His glory in Christ. How many riches does God have? He owns everything. Right? He owns everything. For Him to lavish riches upon me is... He has them. And He lavishes them upon us. Here you are this morning, listening to the preaching of the Word, hearing God in the presence of believers. You are in the presence of God. What a privilege. What a rich, tender mercy that God finds you here or brought you here and you find yourself here. So let me give you four applications. Right? Here they are. Number one, be thankful. Be a thankful people. Be thankful for small mercies. But why should I be thankful? Right? Why should I be thankful? Well, let me tell you what happens when you're thankful. Number one, it increases all your spiritual desires. If you're thankful and giving thanks, it increases your spiritual desires. Number two, if you're thankful, it inclines you to be truly joyful. To be a joyful Christian, if you're thankful. Number three, it, inc- it improves your heart to love Christ and to love others. It improves your heart. And number four, it incentivizes you to be obedient. I'll give them to you again. It increases our spiritual desires, it inclines us to real joy, and it improves our hearts to love more, and it's an incentive to obey Christ, to be obedient. That's what it means to be thankful. Number one, be thankful, right? Number two, And by the way, you could apply these to the chapters. Number one, be thankful. Number two, be thinking. Be a thinking Christian. Isn't that what Paul says? Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. His mind in us. How did Jesus demonstrate his mind? He humbled himself, right? I mean, think about Jesus growing up. He's a life of constant submission to his parents. So much so that he grew in wisdom with God and man. His entire childhood to adulthood is submission. Submission 
That's the mind of Christ. Be thinking like Christ. Number three, which is chapter three, be training. Be training. Because you don't want to be an infant Christian all your life, a baby Christian, do you? No, you want to be a mature Christian. It takes growth, right? So when Paul says, I want to know Christ, I want to be like Christ, he's talking about a process of moving from here to maturity. That's for every Christian. Not just for for Paul, super Christian, no, for ordinary Christians. And Paul, remember, doesn't state of himself, I'm the apostle, you should listen to me. No, he says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I'm a slave. So be training. Because you know what maturity does? It prepares you for heaven. Prepares you for heaven. Number four, which would be chapter four, be transformed, right? Be joyful. Don't be anxious. Be trusting. Right? Be joyful, not anxious, be trusting. Remember how Paul said, uh, I, I appeal to you or I beseech you, Romans 12 verses 1 and 2, by the mercies of God. I appeal to you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service or your spiritual act of worship. And how do you do that? And be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And do not be conformed to this world. I must be transformed, positive, and I must not be conformed to this world, negative. So, be transformed, chapter 4, right? So, those are the four applications. Be thankful, be thinking, be training, be transformed. But let me give you two verses to close with, from Colossians. Colossians 2, 6 and 7 says, Just as you have received Christ Jesus, now I pray all of you have received Christ Jesus, just as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So, have you received Christ? Do you walk? Are you rooted? Are you being built up? Are you established in the faith? And are you abounding in thanksgiving? You see, Paul says you need to be a praising people. A praising people. We need to be praising. I need to be praising. That's the first thing. A praising people. The second verse is also in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. It says this. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Even my prayer life is to be suffused with thanks to God. That's why we prayed this morning. Thanks. Giving thanks to God. So, continue steadfastly. Don't give up. Because praying is one of those things, right? We might give up because we don't see results. No. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. In other words, be a praying people. Here are two things. I must be a praising person and I must be a praying person. And my praising and my praying are connected to being thankful and to be thinking and to be training and to be transformed. And all of those things, goals, applications, observations, whatever you call them, all of them are because God has been tender in his mercies towards us. What do you have, Paul told the Corinthians, that you have not received? You have everything from the hand of God. And here we are with our lives this morning, and yes, our possessions and our homes, by the mercy, by the grace of God. We have a lot to be thankful for, don't we? 
May the Lord help us to be thankful. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word that you've given to us. Thank you that we can learn these great lessons from your word about how to live as your people. We want to be a praising people. We want to be a praying people. We want to be thankful. We want to be thinking. We want to be trained. We want to be transformed. We thank you that your mercies enable us to enter into these processes. May we do so day by day. May we trust you and cast ourselves upon you, all our burdens upon you, because you care for us. To be anxious for nothing, as the Lord Jesus said, because our Heavenly Father knows that we need food and clothing and housing and these such things, and he freely gives them to us. Thank you for preserving us. Thank you for keeping us. We praise your power, and we worship you this morning with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, let's